You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Saturday, April 17. I'm Joanna Robin. And I'm John Edelman. A hunger strike has ended in historic victory for undocumented workers. Today we honor these hunger strikers who put their bodies on the line to win this fund. Give it a round of applause, y'all. They get to eat. Taxi drivers say a new debt relief plan doesn't go far enough. This is going to give people's stimulus money directly into the hands of the lenders. That's not a solution for us. With the school year disrupted, teachers are looking for insight into students' emotions. This window into their psychology has been really fascinating and something that doesn't fit in a kind of everyday curriculum. And doomsday preppers say the growing phenomenon can help keep communities safe during disasters. It's making sure that you're safe so first responders can get people that need more help than you do. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, this news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm M. Sky Holly. The names of all eight victims of the mass shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis were released last night. According to CNN, four of the victims were members of the Sikh community. In a statement released by Sajid Kaur, the Sikh Coalition Executive Director, he said, while we don't yet know the motive of the shooter, he targeted a facility known to be heavily populated by Sikh employees, and the attack is traumatic for our community as we continue to face senseless violence. On Friday, President Biden offered his condolences to the families of the victims. He also called on Congress to ban assault weapons. Who in God's name needs a weapon that can hold 100 rounds or 40 rounds or 20 rounds? It's just wrong and I'm not going to give up till it's done. Congress has yet to take up the proposed ban. In Minneapolis, the defense rested after 13 days of testimony in the Chauvin trial. Derek Chauvin, a former police officer on trial for the murder of George Floyd, invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege and did not testify on the stand. Throughout the trial, the defense sought to cast doubt over the cause of Floyd's death. The jurors will return on Monday to begin their deliberations which Judge Peter Cahill said may last anywhere from an hour to a week. Meanwhile, protests continue in Logan Square Park in response to the police killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. The protests followed the release of troubling body cam footage, which showed Toledo's fatal shooting at the hands of Chicago police officer Eric Stillman. President Biden has announced his hope of holding a summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin this comes after the president announced sweeping sanctions against Russia. Our objective is to have a predictable and stable relationship. We can disagree in areas where we will continue to. We're not naive about that. But we also believe that there's an opportunity to work together in some areas. Yesterday evening, Russia responded by announcing the expulsion of 10 U.S. diplomats. Further retaliation against U.S. businesses may follow. The CDC is requesting more data before ruling on the future of Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine. Earlier this week, the committee temporarily paused use of the vaccine after cases of severe blood clots were reported in six patients who took the vaccine. This is M. Sky Holly, Columbia Radio News. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Marta Guerrero. After this week's Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause, Mayor de Blasio assured New Yorkers of the shot's effectiveness and safety. On Thursday, senior public health advisor Dr. Varma said side effects are rare, but those experiencing headaches, difficulty breathing, and leg swelling should seek medical care. 
the effectiveness of the vaccine um, against uh, preventing uh, infection and particularly severe illness and death uh, remains what we thought it to be, very, very high. Um, in terms of concerns about your own safety, um, the current recommendation is that if you got the vaccine more than three weeks ago, um, you're very far out of the window where we would be concerned about this very rare or an, an unusual side effect. Governor Cuomo passed the affordable broadband bill in Buffalo. The law signed Friday requires all providers to offer high-speed internet to low-income consumers at a rate of $15. This low-cost broadband access in this state is the first law of its kind in the nation. Congratulations, the bill is signed. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown championed the bill, saying online services are more important than ever. The pandemic has made it clear that we cannot consider high-speed internet a luxury. It is a necessity for modern life. Now we need to make sure it is affordable. Signing this bill does just that. 40% of New Yorkers have gotten at least one vaccine dose. New York City's COVID-19 positivity rate slightly above 5%. Over 20 New York City public school parents are suing Mayor de Blasio and the DOE for a full return to in-person classes. An Ohio teen was arrested yesterday after police found him carrying a semi-automatic weapon in Times Square. Today, a high of 58 degrees, mostly cloudy. On Sunday, sunny skies, high temperature of 65. This is Marta Herrera, Columbia Radio News. After over three weeks on hunger strike, activists and immigrants have scored a historic victory. On April 6th, state leaders passed a first-in-the-nation $2.1 billion relief fund for undocumented workers. Martha Guerrero reports. This is such a beautiful day. These hunger strikers have gone 23 days without food. How many days? This is Angeles Solis from Make the Road New York. Over the last month, Solis and members of almost 200 organizations and unions campaigned to get undocumented workers pandemic relief. How? Nearly 100 people participated in a rolling hunger strike in New York City and Westchester. Today we honor these hunger strikers who put their bodies on the line to win this fund. Give it a round of applause, y'all. They get to eat. They get to eat today. On the sunny morning of April 7, a celebration took over Washington Square Park. Sitting across three large tables, strikers ate their first meal in more than three weeks. The occasion? Celebrating a multi-billion dollar fund for undocumented workers. Activists say victory did not come easy. Negotiations in Albany stalled over how big the fund would be and who would be eligible to get the money. For Governor Cuomo, delivering a budget on time has been a point of pride, but New York State history is littered with standoffs. As the fund seemed to fall apart over disagreements on its final details, Strikers like Felipe Hidrobo, an undocumented immigrant from Ecuador, who didn't eat for 19 days, began to lose hope. Besides losing his brother and father to COVID, only a few months apart, Hidrobo was also evicted after he lost his job at a processing plant last year. I kept seeing my brother's face, my father's face, my children's faces back home. Ghosts kept haunting me, saying, is this worth it? But then on April 6, the budget finally passed. The new fund represents a lifeline for one of New York's hardest-hit communities during the pandemic. Immigrants faced a double bind. Many served as frontline workers, bearing the brunt of COVID deaths, while others were among the first to lose jobs. 
Vanessa Agudelo from New York Immigration Coalition says investing in those who struggled most will contribute to the state's economic recovery. Nearly 300,000 New Yorkers excluded from nearly all relief will now have some financial assistance while they try to get back on their feet. Up to $15,000 is available for those with proof of loss of income. But because documentation itself is a known problem spot, thank a day workers or house cleaners paid in cash with no pay stubs. The fund provides a $3,000 payment for those who show New York residency and some work documentation. Forana Ramirez, the longest-standing striker with 23 days under her belt. This victory is about more than just money. Ana says as a restaurant worker who's paid taxes for over nine years, she finally feels seen. Of course money matters, but it's also an acknowledgement of the undocumented workers on their bikes making deliveries, of the dishwashers, of the people across kitchens and restaurants, of the workers at construction sites, of the women cleaning houses. It's an acknowledgement of undocumented people like me, who break a sweat, who work very hard every single day. It's an acknowledgement of human dignity. The fund isn't accepting applications yet, but in the meantime, strikers and supporters dance the day away. Marta Guerrero, Columbia Radio News. The Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project was created in response to Hurricane Sandy. The project's goal is to turn East River Park into a flood barrier, protecting the Lower East Side from harm in future storms. Construction has just begun, and some parts of the park are expected to close for at least three years. As Camille Bond reports, the community is divided over whether losing the park for that long will be worth it. Stuyvesant Cove Park is a tiny little beach by the East River, but it's peaceful here a place to get away from the city, even for half an hour. Nice to meet you, what's your name? Jane. Jane, okay, who's, who's this? <laughs> this is my neighbor's dog, his name's Sherlock. Jane lives nearby and she spends a lot of time here with Sherlock. She's noticed the construction work beginning at the edge of the park, and overall she's optimistic about the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project. Maybe that's one of the good things about Sandy is that they realize they have to do it immediately because that flooding was extensive. It was almost, I think it was past Avenue B. It's crazy. But not everyone is behind the project. Keep walking south along the coast and you'll hit East River Park. Ed Howard and William Hackshaw are coaching a local school's track and field team. It's gonna be rough on us. Yeah, it's terrible. Let me say that. It's gonna yeah. be very rough for the different. whole community. When they close this, there will be nothing. This is the only track that's between the ferry and Central Park. It's utilized for baseball, soccer, track and field, you name it, it's being used. So the fact that they're, they're closing it down and not, and not opening anything else for the individuals, you think it's going to take two to three years before they open get this, you know, again. open again. So it's going to be a big hit to the community. The park is basically the backyard for a lot of the neighborhood, including the NYSHA buildings on the other side of FDR Drive. It's become an even more important community resource during the pandemic. Harriet Hirshhorn says it provided a space for families to connect. We don't really have open space, so that park was sort of a godsend during the pandemic. 
it's not just trees. It's like there's there's really specific parts of that park that people in the community have relationships with, because it's basically four generations of people using that park, like the same family. You'll see four generations of that family in the park. Hirshhorn is a member of a group called East River Park Action. The group is suing the city over the project. A judge initially ruled against them, but they're pursuing an appeal. Hirshhorn says the city's refusal to respond to community activist concerns means this is the only recourse available. People look at the community and they joke with us and they say, well, I guess we'll see you in court. So then community kind of figures out, wow, the only way to fight things that we think are bad for our community is to have a lawsuit. The group is also planning protests later this month. They're hoping to slow or stop the project, because with the ongoing need for social distancing, they say the community needs its park more than ever. Camille Bond, Columbia Radio News. The CDC and FDA have recommended a pause in the use of Johnson & Johnson's single-dose COVID-19 vaccine. The agencies are investigating reports of a rare but serious blood clot in six people. This pause comes at a time when public health officials face the growing challenge of vaccine hesitancy. I spoke with Mitra Kalita, co-founder of the newsletter Epicenter NYC. Kalita's newsletter is helping New Yorkers to understand the reasons behind the pause, its consequences for vaccine hesitancy, and how they can stay in the loop as new information emerges. Hi, Mitra. Thank you so much for talking to Uptown Radio. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Can you tell us your thoughts on what the Johnson & Johnson pause means for the vaccine rollout in the U.S.? The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was really favored by the populations that might not have the scheduling flexibility or the transportation or just the ability to get two doses as Pfizer and Moderna require is quite a hurdle towards vaccination for many parts of the population. So for these populations, J&J was a real game changer. And what's been very difficult since the pause is to figure out ways to serve those populations because we're back to having Pfizer and Moderna, which of course require two doses for their efficacy. Can you tell me more about the efforts to serve those people in the pause? Has your organization helped people sign up for the J&J vaccine and now are they in a sort of limbo? Sure. So Epicenter launched back in July of last year as a newsletter to get through the pandemic. And this past January, we started to hear from elderly folks, restaurant workers, managers, just trying to navigate what was a very bureaucratic almost decentralized system of multiple vaccine sites, and you would have to check all of them in order to get your appointment. Even your, let's say, average digital savvy person was looking at this and feeling quite overwhelmed. And so Epicenter started to leverage existing networks we had among small businesses and then some community organizations such as churches and mutual aid groups And we did a few things. One, we started to flyer everywhere, just saying, if you need help, give us a call, send us an email. We started to talk to managers of restaurants and other establishments directly saying, you know, do your workers qualify? Can we help you navigate this? And then significantly, we found a real network effect where we would help one person get vaccinated. They would go back and tell their shift or their church or their mosque. And we would hear from dozens of people 
at those places. Got it. So what has happened to people who were signed up for Johnson & Johnson vaccines? It is so complicated to navigate all of this. So our concern for folks was really let's try to just assure them this has been on pause. We can help you book Moderna or Pfizer. We can help you find something convenient to you, your schedule. We can help you with the second dose as well. And so it really had to evolve into this message of positivity and we're still with you. How could governments realistically manage making the logistical aspects of it easier? So there's a disconnect between the message that politicians are saying and how folks on the ground who have to administer the vaccine, how they are implementing some of those policies, right? So I think one area we can solve for is documentation and just really erring on the side of accepting that the human before you is indeed a human in need of his or her vaccine, and we just need to provide that, give them proof of that, and move on to the next person. I worry that um, We've set up a massive bureaucracy to administer vaccines, but we have not solved for the really important communications piece of it. Thank you so much for joining us on Uptown Radio. Thanks. Preppers have long been scoffed at and stigmatized. But in 2020, while most of us were scrambling for the last rolls of toilet paper, the prepared were grabbing their go bags. After such a dastardly year, Doomsday doesn't feel so far off. And, as I found out, preppers are having a moment in New York City. TV shows like Doomsday Preppers push an unfair stereotype. Fearful, paranoid, militaristic. Crazy, weird, freakish, a lone white male hero. But most preppers aren't like that. Take Julie Fredrickson, an entrepreneur in her 30s. I was living in Chinatown right before uh, Superstorm Sandy hit New York City. Lower Manhattan remains eerily dark and partially underwater. After 18- Fredrickson's high-rise apartment was plunged into darkness for 10 days. Uh, it was definitely a, a cold, strange experience to live in one of the most modern cities on the planet and have no electricity. So I decided that I would like to be prepared for any emergencies, man-made or otherwise, uh, in the future. When COVID-19 hit, nearly a decade later, her planning paid off. While a lot of New Yorkers were scrambling to stock up their pantries, Fredrickson was buying masks and cleaning supplies. After three months, she moved her family to Colorado to ride it out. Okay, YouTubers, this is the Anger Prepper. So today's episode is going to be... Jason Charles is also an urban prepper. There was a point in time where I think people were like, uh-oh. You know, like when they went to the supermarket, there was nothing on the shelves. I think that was the, the oh shit moment for a lot of people to wake up and realize, all right, we need to get this done. We need to start something. Charles is a Harlem firefighter, but in his spare time, he runs the New York Preppers Network, a community of like-minded preppers. He says it has been flooded with interest during the pandemic. There are a lot more people joining prepper groups, forming prepper groups, starting YouTube channels to teach people how to prep. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a growing Phenomenon. Today's episode is going to be on uh, second wave shopping. Anthropologist Anna Maria Bounds actually interviewed Charles for her book. She says it's not outlandish for New Yorkers to worry about emergencies. 
Their city has endured natural disasters, terrorist attacks, the global financial crisis, and now a pandemic and a recession. The fascinating thing about New York preppers is they're, they come from all walks of life, all ages. It's just, it's, it's, it's very, very different than what I expected. One of the most important findings from my book was that a majority of preppers are women. According to Bounds, how you prepare also depends on class and ethnicity. It, it, extremely wealthy preppers focus on things like um, strategic relocations in um, exotic destinations, otherwise known as very posh homes in very nice areas. While Bounds says New York has plenty of rich preppers, most are middle and working class. Many are people of colour who understandably feel they can't rely on the government for help. Another important takeaway from Bounds' research is that preppers look out for each other. Fredrickson, the prepper inspired by Hurricane Sandy, says prepping isn't just about keeping you safe. It's making sure that you're safe so first responders can get to people that need more help than you do. Most urban preppers don't wear camouflage or hide in bunkers. They just want to make sure their communities can survive. Joanna Robin, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm John Edelman. And I'm Joanna Robin. Indebted taxi drivers are demanding a better relief program from the city. And a protest group founded last summer is taking to the streets on bicycles, demanding justice for black lives. These stories and more coming up. A taxi medallion used to be a great investment. More than a dozen cities sold these little tin permits to operate cabs. But it's been a long time since medallion values were good here in New York City, a problem that's only been made worse by the pandemic. Last month, Mayor de Blasio promised to change that with a program that uses federal stimulus money to provide financial relief for medallion owners. But the plan hasn't gotten warm reception from drivers. Nico Picciuto has more. Uh, City Hall, please. Thank you. In the past year, Even as more regulations on Uber and Lyft have gone into effect, taxi drivers have continued to fall into debt. Last week, we met up with hundreds of drivers at City Hall where they've been protesting a relief plan put forward by the mayor's office. They say the plan doesn't help them enough. Instead, they're demanding a more robust bailout plan from the city for decades of inaction. The New York Times reports companies like Uber and Lyft aren't entirely to blame. Many drivers were actually the victims of the industry leaders who pushed them into reckless loans while pocketing millions. It might help to cut in here and ask, why do drivers need a taxi medallion? And what made the market for them so volatile in the first place? The important thing about this little piece of metal is that once you attach it to a car in New York City, you have the right to pick up passengers for a fare. To make a long story short, the city controlled the amount of medallions out there. So when the market was good and one changed hands, it was for quite a bit of money. But over the years, thanks to lenders and industry leaders, the prices have changed a lot, while the amount of medallions in circulation has pretty much stayed the same. Taxi medallions increasing a thousand percent from their average price of $50,000 in 1980, according to the New York Post. And that was in the early 2000s. At that time, you see the value going up really quickly, from $50,000 to $100,000 to $200,000. But the value of this piece of metal has just reached a dizzying million dollars. That's right. 
eventually surpassing $1 million before dipping again with the emergence of Uber and Lyft. Now, fast forward to the present, drivers have seen more than an 80% reduction in their business since the pandemic began, according to the New York Times. Some of them are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Which brings us back to City Hall and the de Blasio relief plan. The mayor is in his own world, you understand? Uh, he doesn't want to hear our problems. This is going to give people's stimulus money directly into the hands of the lenders. That's not a solution for us. That last voice you heard is Augustine Tang. He says the mayor's plan funnels money back into the hands of the brokers, who were actually the ones to steer medallion owners into faulty loans in the first place. In fact, tons of people at the protest said the de Blasio program is a cash giveaway to lenders that leaves drivers high and dry. They say the mayor's plan falls far short of the $125,000 cap on medallion debt they're currently asking for. But for these drivers, this isn't just about money. A number of suicides over the last two years has also been traced to medallion debt. Yes, after that, we, I found out oh, my driver's number five. Five percent, he committed suicide. After that, another four people, and now we found out, oh, this is not true, this is not right. The city does doing the wrong, something wrong. That's Richard Chow, one of the leaders of the protests. His brother Kenny took his own life a little over a year ago, citing medallion debt as the reason, one of nine suicides during a two-year span. Since then, Richard's been fighting to achieve debt relief for medallion owners. With the de Blasio plan, he says you get a life preserver at best. And the other drivers we came across said the same. In a written statement, Mayor de Blasio said the program, quote, creates a pathway to solvency and supports the taxi industry's role in building a recovery for all of us. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Nico Picciuto. The killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last May sparked worldwide protests. In New York City, thousands of cyclists took to the streets demanding racial justice and the street riders movement was born. Today, the protest on wheels is coming back after the fatal shooting of another unarmed black man, Dante Wright, by a Minneapolis police officer last Saturday. I spoke with the founder of Street Riders, DJ turned activist, Peter Kerr. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for the invite. What is Street Riders, first of all? So we began as a tool of sorts to protect marching protesters. But unexpectedly, our numbers just swelled to the point where we accidentally became a protest and we just ran with it. Actually, one day we were all riding back to Brooklyn. An NYPD helicopter began chasing us. And so we were like, wow, they think we're a protest. You know what? We may as well be one. And there's another protest happening now, and this is number, is your 22nd ride? Is that right? Yes, it's going to be the 22nd justice ride that we're having. And this is a special one because, as you all know, there's been yet another killing, um, Dante Wright, in the Twin Cities, where I'm also from as well. And we are outraged. You know, many black people feel um, helpless at this point. You know, we're fed up, we're exhausted. But, you know, we have to still fight. Um, So um, today uh, we're going to be out um, riding our bikes in protest from Barclay Center at uh, 2.30 p.m. Can you describe to us what a street riders justice ride would normally look like? We all congregate. We speak to the folks for a bit. 
We remind them why we're there. We remind them that this is not a joyride. Um, when the ride begins, it's a no judgment zone. We're all moving as one. We all respect each other. We're putting our voices out there loud for black lives. And most times we also wear the same color. Like for example, uh, for this justice ride, we'll all be wearing red. And the symbolism of red for this Saturday is because of our blood, you know, because of bloodshed, like our blood keeps spilling. The original idea came out of the death of George Floyd. How does it feel to be almost a year on and doing this all over again? It's exhausting. But then again, you know, our life is exhausting every single day. We protest, we're on the streets. Um, but the same thing happens. And not only does the same thing happen, but when we protest out on the streets, we are met with more violence. But at the same time, the biggest reason why I shake my head at all this is because this has been happening. I've had Minneapolis police knee on my neck. I've received multiple car tickets for having air freshener on my rearview mirror. These are things that have been happening all along. How do you think New York City has been handling its responsibility to communities of color? Let me tell you what's wrong with New York City right now. New York City is facing three different crises. We have racism. We have a crisis that is brought about by the socioeconomic status of New York City residents. And we have a mental health crisis. You have to deal with all three of them. But we can't deal with all three of them until the leadership acknowledge that we have these three problems. And none of that is happening. There's no accountability. In light of this, what are your expectations for the upcoming mayoral race? Well, right now we're pressing them really hard. We know elections are in June, um, so expect way more justice rights. We want to let the people know that we need to choose leaders who truly represent us. So we're being optimistic about it. Lastly, can you give us some tips on how we can acknowledge the injustice and tackle it going forward? The first thing I'd say is listen. Listen to what we tell you the problem is. Once you listen, you know, participate. There's a lot of performative um, allyship happening right now whereby people will just come to a ride or a protest with a sign and then say, I've done my part. No, that is not enough. We need allies to step up and take charge in confronting these racist systems. That was Peter Kerr, founder of Street Riders New York City. Thank you for joining us today, Peter. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a difficult year for teachers and students alike. COVID-19 and the ensuing chaos has taken a huge toll on students' mental health. And teachers are left grappling with this question. How can we teach in these times of crisis? Chloe Wynn reports on the current landscape in schools and how educators are navigating these challenging times. I was a really bright kid the other day that just feels like my fifth first day. I thought that was a really good line. You know, normally you have one first day. That's it. You have first day, you get the jitters out of the way, and then you get rolling. Now you have lots of stops and starts. There's just no consistency. Hi, my name is Jared. Uh, I'm a math teacher in Brooklyn. This is my 15th year uh, teaching math, and it's by far and away the most exciting, for better or for worse, year I've ever had. In a normal year, school gives students a sense of consistency, but over the past 13 months, students like Jared's have experienced anything but that. We started school late, and then we had in-person, and then we went fully remote. You know, students had to do Zoom meetings and figure all that out, and then we went back. 
And a regular routine isn't the only thing that's changed during the pandemic. According to the CDC, mental health-related emergency department visits among children ages 5 to 17 have increased by close to 30%. So how are teachers responding to classrooms riddled with fear and anxiety? There's a lot of teachers that are teaching towards the mental health. You know, we're teaching math, myself, my co-teacher, because some kids feel better when they're just actively learning. Adolescent psychologist Susan Bodner said that Jared's approach, creating a sense of normalcy, is probably helpful for students who need to disconnect from the chaos. And while there's no set-in-stone rulebook for how to respond to anxious students... The best thing you can do is listen really absorb what another person is experiencing or going through. This is an excellent opportunity for empathy. Mary Aaronworth works as the Senior Deputy Director of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project at Columbia University, and she says that empathy has been at the forefront of curriculum this year. For instance, one teacher started a virtual mood board for students to post pictures of how they felt during the height of the pandemic. So one of the first prompts was simply, like, how are you feeling? What we all learned was that they were terribly lonely. When he asked again, how are you feeling? We learned a lot of the kids were really afraid. What are you, you know, what are you, what are you outraged about? And so outraged in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Activities like the mood board are giving teachers valuable insight into their students' lives and thoughts. This window into their psychology has been really fascinating and something that doesn't fit in a kind of everyday curriculum, so thinking about how we can hold on to that. Mary said if there's one silver lining to this otherwise cloudy time, it's that teachers are working on connecting to and understanding their students in new and profound ways. And she's looking forward to hearing even more about what students have learned over these past few months. They've learned about epidemiology, they've learned about family, they've learned about racism, they've learned about protest. And to to find out more, I think that we would be able to teach in much more beautiful and generative ways if we didn't treat them as empty vessels who come to school wrapped in deficit, but instead thought of them as coming to school with all these beauties and strengths that it's going to take a little time, but it's our job to learn. Chloe Wynn, Columbia Radio News. A state-funded project 20 years in the making is finally coming together. It's part of Governor Cuomo's $51 billion campaign to revitalise New York. The project enters its final phase this month and will open fully on July 1, 2021. Lily Lopate reports from Pier 76. If you're ever driving down the West Side Highway or run along the Hudson River, you might see Pier 76, which is a gritty blue building on West 45th Street. And if you've been inside, it's probably to pick up your impounded car. But the pier is currently under construction with a speed-up timetable. Governor Cuomo explains his $20 million vision. New Yorkers are worried about New York. What's going to happen? Are we going to come back? Are we going to be okay? Of course we are. And let's start not just building it, but showing it. Pier 76 in Manhattan is going to be turned into a public space. It is been a tow pound for many, many years, and it's a beautiful pier that goes out into the Hudson. So we're going to have that finally. For many, COVID highlighted the importance of outdoors. Doris Feeder, a political activist, knows from her Hudson River-facing apartment 
how restorative water views can be. She believes the park is a sign of recovery. What the governor Cuomo is doing with the towpath is perhaps a metaphor for the people in New York to come outside, to get out now, to congregate, to be with friends, to breathe the fresh air. Also, from a political perspective, doing redevelopment in that part of the city is a strategy to stimulate the economy. The pier, formerly NYPD's tow pound, is now going green. The biggest downside? Residents will have to trek to two new tow pounds in Brooklyn or the Bronx to get their cars. Architect Stan Ekstadt says the design should complement the Hudson River Park aesthetic. We're going to wind up with a pier continuing much of the landscape palette, materials and furnishings, etc., that go up and down west side today. Transforming a steel box garage into a 5.6-acre park on the pier means reimagining a facility the size of four football fields. It's a conversion model that's happened before in New York's waterfront history. The pier was once a fisherman's dock, a manufacturing shipyard, tow pound, and now an urban community oasis. Westside resident Lindsay Sharp has already taken notice of the project. I happened to walk by it the other day, and the garage where the cars used to be is totally gone. They've completely stripped it down to its bones. The sides and the roof are all gone, but the frame is still there, like an airplane hangar. So architecturally, the industrial skeleton, if you will, is like a reminder of its past. And then in time, you'll have this wonderful airy park on the pier with plants and the Hudson River. Benches and railings will also be added but the rest will be open pure. Soon, a walkway will welcome visitors with the salty air of summer. After a year-plus indoors, it's about time New Yorkers soak up the Hudson River skyline. This is Lily Lopate, Columbia Radio News. Well, that's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Anna Gordon ran our show from Manhattan. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Lucy Suchek in Manhattan's East Village with the help from two-way producers Nico Picciuto and Marta Bino. And senior editor Camille Bond led our copy team with the help of assistant editor Chloe Wynn and webcaster Lily Lope. Bringing us the news was Sky Holly on the national front and Martha Guerrero reporting locally from Manhattan. The feature stories you heard were reported by our team. In order of appearance by Martha Guerrero, Camille Bond, Joanna Robin, Nico Picciuto, Chloe Wynn, and Lily Lopez. Our instructor, Ellen Horn, and Camille Peterson advised our staff. Blue Dot Sessions provided some of the music for today's show. I'm John Edelman, your co-host today. And I'm your co-host, Joanna Robin. You're listening to Uptown Radio, which is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. This is the official podcast from the Columbia Journalism School's Class of 2021. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, we want to thank our listeners for the continued support. Stay safe until we talk again soon.